decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. This is Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four, twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and round the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, as you can tell from these verses, what John describes here in this fourth chapter is, is really a worship service uh, going on in the throne room of God. Um, this vision in chapter 4 is a vision of God the Father. And I'm going to show you that in these verses you just saw, it's quite a, an interesting, complicated scene. Um, I think Simon did fairly good in capturing the, the difficulty of what John is describing because he is actually engaging or observing a worship service around the throne of God. And I think he's doing the best he can in a finite way. He's using very common human language to typify a very the sight of deity, which if you imagine just a little bit, that would be quite overwhelming. This entire series, the reason that we've done it, um, the elders asked me several months ago to, to go through this series again because when we first did it in 2004, our church was quite different and our church was very formal. We were using this whole front of the auditorium as a pipe organ and we had a very large pulpit in the front and we wore suits and ties. And the, uh, a couple months ago, the elders said, can you go back and revisit that and make it more accessible? And we've titled this series Overcoming Bystander Christianity because we're hoping that, that this will show you how different you can actually view not taking liberty but really understanding what the book of Revelation really has to say because 
the conclusions that many have drawn and held, I think, almost by just kind of a hand-me-down type of understanding, very few churches actually take the time to go all the way through the book. And we're hoping that, that you might be able to overcome some of the hysteria that, that has been left to us from Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth and the Left Behind series, uh, even This Present Darkness by F Frank Peretti, that all those series kind of pointed to kind of a cataclysmic end to the, to the world. And I think as a, as a result of those conclusions, many Christians have actually begun just simply to become observers. And their faith really isn't intelligently demanding of them engagement with the world. They've, in one sense, been excused, they've been given a mulligan to not really bring about change. And so we're hoping that this would be the basis of tremendous change for all of you in the days to come. I want to begin this, this morning by showing you a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually wrote a letter to Erasmus. When, when the Reformation first started, Luther, uh, Rome actually put a, the Roman Catholic Church put a price on Luther's head. They, he was very elusive, they couldn't kill him, and so they decided not to make a martyr out of him, and they dispatched what was considered then the brightest and most intelligent scholar theologian in the entire world in Erasmus to really kind of squelch or squash Luther's reformed understanding of things and his break from Rome. And as Luther engaged Erasmus, he wrote in a letter to Erasmus, he said, your views of God are far too human. And I, I fear that that is the case with many of us today. I, I fear that many of us have attended churches, we've been partakers of ministries, we've read books and listened to music that is essentially very man-centered and our views of God are far too human. The, the, the God of the Bible, I think, is relatively unknown. And even to discuss the fear of God is kind of an upsetting, unnerving thing for many Christians. And I'm hoping that as we would move through this today, you might be able to see perhaps a chasm in your own understanding. I can tell you that as a, as a preacher, um, this message is a very difficult message because I'm wondering how much of it will actually find some place of contact in, in your thinking and in your own perception of God. And as I said, I fear that for many of us it won't have any point of contact and it could actually seem a little weird. Um, I want to begin by showing you how, how base some of these statistics from George Barna and his book Revolution this research came out, the book was published in 2005, so it's getting a little bit old. But I just want to give you three points of perspective into what's happening in the church in America. He said, half of all believers say that they do not feel that they've entered into the presence of God or experienced a genuine connection, connection with Him during the past year. So half of all Christians are actually admitting that it's been a year since there's been any real connection between them and God. The next statistic is an interesting one. The typical church believer will die without leading a single person to a life-saving knowledge of and relationship with Jesus. That one is, is interesting because there's this rise in the American church called the missional church where the church is saying, we're going to repent of just creating ghettos where we go up and we pitch a tent in a city and our intention is just to get as many people out of the city into the church as we possibly can and to get as much money out of those people that attend the churches as we possibly can. And so the church has said we don't want to be a source of captivity anymore. And we want to be actually a launching pad where people actually jump back into their life. That's the kind of a prevailing philosophy of ministry today. And it's a radical and refreshing change, I think, from what we were seeing you know, in the middle of the 20th century. But the problem is, is that still people are not leading people to Jesus. Most of you, if you're at all norm, you will die without ever having experience, even with your own children, even with your own family. You will die without anyone coming to Jesus because of you. The third statistic is an interesting one where it really speaks to how people have come to view the Bible 
It says less than one out of ten Christians, 18 and older, believes that absolute moral truth exists at all or believes that such truth is contained in the Bible. Now, the reason that this pertains and so germane to our lesson this morning is that it deals with the fact that people are not allowing just one in ten Christians is, is actually looking to the Bible to shape their thoughts. And so what they're thinking about their faith is coming from some other influence. It's coming from friends, it's coming from music, it's coming from books, but it's not coming from the Bible. They don't even know that truth exists like that, much less believing that it's contained in the Bible. That's very, very interesting information. And so I don't think it is all strange for us to begin a consideration of a worship service going on in heaven by admitting the fact for many of us this is a big reach. It's going way outside the box for our thinking. I want to begin by showing you four kind of interesting observations from this context because I think it kind of sets a little bit of parameter to better understand what John sees. The first observation is I want to show you the timing because I think it's very germane. John just simply says in verse 1, after this, and he's really, it's really interesting because this is after Jesus had given him the message to the seven churches. The context that he established in chapter 1, verse 10, was on the Lord's Day. So it's a Sunday, and John's on the island of Patmos, which we looked at, which is a penal colony just off the coast, about 50 miles from, from Ephesus, the first church he wrote to. And so the, the timing is that this is all the same day. He initially has the first, what I said, the first of three visions of Jesus. He has uh, on this Sunday when he's on Patmos, and Jesus then gives him these seven messages to send to the seven churches, and he just says after this, there's a very strict chronology, and, and it's not weird. He's not being zapped around or anything else. There's just this, these events, and he said so after he concluded these seven messages to the seven churches, then he said this took place. Now, the second thing I want to explain to you is the voice because I'm not going to sing. Um, in verse 1, it says, The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Well, when you understand this context, you know from chapter 1, verse uh, 10 to 12, and then again in verse 17 and 18, the voice that he's hearing is the voice of Jesus. And so he's listening to Jesus now. He's listening... He, was, he, he heard and was kind of presented before Jesus in the, in the Spirit in chapter 1. Jesus gives him, he's really dictating the message to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the voice that he is still listening to is the same voice that started it all, is the voice of Jesus. It was Jesus that took John into this throne room to observe this worship service. The third thing I want you to consider is very interesting is, is the actual location, because John's given us actually quite a bit of information in chapter 1, verse 9, he's on the island of Patmos. In chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the Spirit, capital S. So the Spirit of God is involved in this. And then in verse 1, Jesus tells him, come up here to heaven. Now, when Paul's describing this, he said he went to the third heaven. Now, that isn't really complicated language because what you would say is that you have the strata of the earth, and then above that we have this atmosphere that we would consider to be the first heaven birds are flying in the heaven. We have clouds in the heaven. And the second heaven would be what we would consider outer space. And then there's this third space that he calls this third heaven. And this is where John is taken in the spirit. Now the implication of this is that this makes this a very Trinitarian passage. You have Jesus taking him to heaven while he's in the spirit to observe God the Father. Now, for those of you that may have grown up in different faith backgrounds, and Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, deny the Trinity. But this is undeniably a Trinitarian passage, and it's not, many people don't really observe that, that all three of these things are taking place. He's with Jesus in the Holy Spirit observing God. Now, the last thing I want you to consider is the significance of what's going to start taking place now. In verse 1, it says, he says, come up here and I'll show you what must soon or what must take place after this. Now, this actually gives you the outline that extends it from what we saw in chapter 1, verse 19, where John is told, he says, write therefore, and there's three prongs to the outline of the whole book. You can put the whole book in these three compartments. Number one, the things that you have seen. 
So John is called upon to recollect and recall experiences that he already had. The second part of it is those that are, and so he's now going to be taking an account of things that are taking place immediately. So it's, he's got a consideration of things that have been in the past in his own experiences, and then he's recording things that are taking place right now. And then the third part, those that are to take place after this. So he's got the past, the present, and the future in these three categories of the book. Now what's interesting is that this chapter marks the beginning of the first prophecy. The book is basically outlined in two major prophecies. The first one starts in chapter 4 and ends at the end of chapter 9. The second major prophecy begins in chapter 10, verse 1, to the end of the book. And so this is a major shift. If you're listening to a piece of music, there would be a, ma a major bridge, there would be a major transition going on now. If you, were, if you were reading a book, if you're watching a play, this would be the intermission in this next act. So this is not an insignificant transition as we make our way through the book. So that brings us then quickly to this John's observations of the worship that's actually going on. We see in verse 1, excuse me, verse 2, he said, once, when he said, come up here, at once, John says, immediately I was in the Spirit, capital S, in the Spirit of God, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, I'm going to show you that this, this language is somewhat figurative, but I don't think it's at all John's fault. He, like other writers, he's going to make a description of heaven that's very similar to what Ezekiel had made some 700 years before. It's going to be very similar to what Isaiah made in 722 BC and so it's kind of interesting when you actually begin to break down how similar these men's depiction or articulating what they saw and the first thing that I observation that I want to show you is the object of the worship clearly the object of the worship is not men it's God himself in verse 3 and verse 5 in verse 3 it says and he who sat on 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 there or sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. He's really describing the majesty and the grandeur of that setting. This is a throne room that's not like going into a court where you have a judge sitting in a kind of a boring kind of wooden desk. He's trying to grasp this, and he said, when you consider fine jewelry and stones that are precious, he said it was filled like that. The grandeur of it was just almost overtaking. In verse 5, we see that he's really captivating the, the power and the authority, the sense of just amazement that he is taking in. In verse 5, he says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, uh, there was as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. He's capturing something that I think many of us can best relate to with the lightning. Now, we live here right, right across the way here in, the, in, in, in a tall building. We actually live on the 23rd floor, and occasionally there, there'll be a, a lightning storm coming through Denver. And being out on that balcony when lightning strikes just makes, the, makes your skin crawl. It causes you, every, occasionally I'll be watching Tracy when she's cooking on the, on the balcony. And when the, when the thunder, if you can see the flash of lightning or hear the thunder, she'll just come running in. And I wouldn't even be out there. That's why she's cooking. But, but, but lightning is a frightening element because it can't be directed. It, it, it is in, incredibly powerful and it's destructive. And what's it hit? What it hits? I, I can remember hiding in the mountains and seeing huge trees struck by lightning and just blown apart, literally pieces blown hundreds of feet away from the strike. And John saying this immediately, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this and there's lightning coming from the throne, there's all this power and this thunder going on, and literally I think you can imagine your hair being blown back, and he's watching this amazing power and authority as he tries to describe it and depict it in this description. And so the object of the worship is God. The second observation I want you to consider is the participants in the worship. I, I think this is very, very interesting. There's two classes of beings that John describes. The first is the elders in verse 4. 
It says there's 24 elders on 24 thrones. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this, that some people said, well, you have the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then you have the 12 apostles. I don't believe that did at all. I believe that these elders depict you, Christians. They're, they're kind of a setting. They're a place that, that John is looking at people. There's people engaging in this worship. Now, I don't believe that John's engaged in it. I, I believe John is just amazed. He's in the Spirit, and he's watching this. But what is going on is being done by people, people just like you, people just like me. And I believe that the elders, and we're going to see this a little bit further into the book, those elders are really representing the church. In the end, you have to see that Israel really is the church. There's only one Israel. And in the end, you're going to have people that are standing there saved by Jesus by the time we get to chapter 20 in the judgment. You have people that are being saved by Jesus and people that are not. You have the sheep and then you have the goats. And it's that simple. And I think we made it way too complicated. And the, the elders are the people. And the second beings that we see here, are the, these are the weird ones, the angels. In verse 6 to 8, it says, There's four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. And the third living creature with the face of a lion. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. That's weird internal eyes their eyes they're covered with eyes on the outside on the inside i i don't even know exactly how john would discern that now we we know from the other descriptions i want to first show you ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10 where ezekiel is describing this very closely to how john describes it in in verse 10 of chapter 1 ezekiel says as for the likeness of their faces each had a human face the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. So he's describing the beings having four faces. And some would say, well, that's, that's changed from John. They're not describing the same thing. I don't think so. I think John's just looking at the frontal part of it, and he's not seeing the sides or the back. And what, what Ezekiel is describing is that all four of them have faces that they never turn. They don't have to turn. There's a face. Whichever direction they go, there's already a face pointed that way. We know that they're covered with eyes and they have very descriptive, and we'll get into this later. And this face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, and the face of a man. But all four beings have all four faces. And John is just looking at the frontal part of it. And he describes it. Now, next I want to show you Isaiah's description in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, where Isaiah is taken up and he's... He, Again, he's engaged in this worship service and he's describing it in verse 2. He says, Above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic, that's the name of an angelic class of beings. And each had the six wings. He's describing the wings that John saw. And he said, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so these angelic beings have this very majestic stature. Now, Ezekiel goes in chapter 1, and he's describing these wheels that allow them beneath them, and John doesn't go into that here, what allow them to travel in any direction they want without turning. They're not like us, that, that uh, we have to turn, or our field of vision, our field of perception is too narrow. They don't have to do that. They're entirely covered with eyes. And so we, we see that there's these two types of beings engaging in all this worship, producing all of this adoration to God. It's people and it's angels. Now, the third observation I want you to consider is the content of the worship, the content of the worship. And what's interesting is that the first part of it is that we see that it's unceasing. Now, for some of you and for me, it's hard for us to structure or to maintain people's attention for very long. Um, not too long ago, before uh, we, we had this series that I did in 2004 online. We had it up before we started this, but we took it down. But I've had several people say, man, you preached for over an hour back then. And some of you can say, yeah, we remember that. It was painful. <laughs> Is it, 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 it's hard, I think, to sustain that kind of attention for very long. We live in, in a, uh, with a, an amazing bombardment of information, video, and uh, intense graphics that we, that we interact with all day long. 
And uh, most of us are, are admittedly kind of living in a glut of information. We don't retain very much of what you read. It's because you don't have to. If, if, if you forget something, you can Google it. And what's interesting is that John is basically saying it was unceasing. We see that in verse 8. He said, they did this day and night. They never ceased. And so there's this constant repetition that's going on of this worship that he says. See, now, this is very interesting because I think our culture is actually becoming conscious of an influence called uh, Plato. It was named after Plato. It's called Neoplatonism, where the Greeks actually lived in a very dualistic mindset, and they believed that you had the metaphysical above the physical, which you do have those two categories, I think, in your thinking. But they structured it to where you, you had the, kind of the spiritual, mystical stuff up here. And then you had your everyday stuff in this category beneath it. And what happened is those influences began to creep into the church early in the first century and ever since then, is that it caused many of us to think, well, what we do on Sunday is very different than what we do on Monday to Saturday. And we've got these neat little categories. And Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, she begins the first chapter by this interview of, uh, of a group of women that are all working in an abortion clinic in the South someplace. I, I don't remember right now. But they interviewed them, and they were, they were all Christian women that didn't agree with, didn't agree with abortion. Did I say divorce? Uh, it was abortion clinic, and they don't have clinics for divorce, <laughs> just to, to be clear. Um, and, and they, she interviewed all of them, all four, I think there were four of them, and all four of them said that they were against it. And she said, well, how can you do it? They said, well, that's my job. She said, what do you mean? She said, well, that's not my faith. They all said, that, that's just what I do on Monday to Friday. And it was so compartmentalized that they had no problem. Now, I don't think that they're that strange. I think that many of us in this room can relate to that. Now, what I've experienced over the last several years, and I, I want you just to pay attention maybe for the next week or so, I think that there's a lot of people that don't want any of their worship to be too normal. Now, why I say that is that there's a lot of people that, that when their worship becomes normal, it, it feels like all the other time, and they can't let it, break down that way so what they do is seek out services that are really strange in, in fact the weirder they are the better because when they do that they really believe that they've done something special for God they want the church to keep a, a, a real strange worship because when they go there the whole time that's God's time and they don't want it to touch they don't want it to be normal. They don't want it to make you think. They don't want it to drive you into your everyday life. They want it to be weird and different. And it comes from this, this, this distinction. And I, what he's saying is something that they never stop doing. And I believe even you can challenge some of the effect of Neoplatonism on some of your thinking because some of you struggle with prayer. Because you have prayer into this category that unless you're on your, on your knees next to your bed with the lights out, you're not praying. And you can't do that when you're driving. Don't do that when you're driving. See, I believe that prayer was intended to redeem your self-talk. But see, for, for some of you, that's too natural. That's too normal. It doesn't feel special. But I really believe that you're to pray without ceasing. You're to always be rejoicing. And I don't think you can do that if it's just on your knees at night without the light. And there comes a time where you just have to redeem your thinking. And I think he's talking about something that's 24-7. Whatever 24 hours would be like in heaven, I don't know. But it didn't stop. The next part of the, the worship that he's looking at that I think is interesting is that it was extremely God-centered. It had an orientation to it that I think would defy what many of us have come to know. In verse 9 and 10, he says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. It, it has this orientation that is preoccupied with God, not preoccupied with man. Now, in verse 11, they all, they're all saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Now, this is quite a statement. This is one that I think is easy to overlook. This is a person being raptured 
by the grandeur of a big God. Not a human God. Not just some human ideas that you're projecting onto some being, but a being that is so worthy of your worship that it would be wrong for you not to give it. Now, some people don't like it when I say this, and I'm going to say it as easy as I can because it, it comes across kind of strange in the beginning. God is entirely selfish. God is not the mushy thing that is just wringing his hands in heaven, an old, long, white beard, just barely shuffling along under his robe. He's a God that is so captivating. Now, the reason that that insults the minds of many Christians that I've talked to in the past is that you've never known anything that deserves to be selfish. And when you've ever known a woman that was selfish, a man that's selfish, children that are selfish, a boss that is selfish, a policeman that's selfish, it doesn't matter. If you've ever known another creature that was selfish, they don't deserve to be selfish. And so to think of God in that category is kind of insulting to some people, but he deserves to be selfish. The scripture tells us that he can't love anything but himself. And so when his love goes out of him onto you, he's loving himself. Now that, that, that blows some circuits. I can see the smoke. Um, but this is not a man-centered passage. This is not God cheering you on. This is not God even saying, well done, or depart from me. He's not paying attention to people. Beings are paying attention to him. And the distinctive component of this is intensely God-centered. Now that brings us to the third and final observation I want to leave with you today is that it, it was rational. It was rational. There's four parts of the rationality that I think you capture in verse, in verse 8. Obviously, the holiness of God, which I told you the concept of holy, holy, holy is, a, is, is, is said three times because he's, they're emphatically enforcing the fact that God is, the, the concept of holy is otherness, consecratedness, separatedness. To consecrate something was to take it from a common place and put it completely over by itself. And when they said it three times, they're saying, man, he is different, different, different. He's other, other, other. And you, you, you see, again, some of the Neoplatonism comes in because you, you think you understand that. But very few people understand how separate that they're making it. They're, they're saying, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. And they repeat it three times. He's different, different, different. And so it's intensely rational. Now, this cuts against the grain of many of us that had experiences in, the, in, in Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches where the, the, the worship became intensely emotional. It engaged us emotionally, which isn't all bad, but for some of you, it's, it's retarded your worship rationally. And so unless you get in, unless you go in and you're whipped into some sort of an emotional frenzy, you're bored because your mind doesn't need to be engaged in that. Now, I'm not saying, you know, intelligent worship lacks emotion, but what I'm saying is that sometimes emotional worship lacks intelligence. That's not the same. And so there's something about this that I think you have to see. The holiness, number one. Number two, the eternality of God. The eternal nature of God is who was and is and who, who is to come. They're saying, we can't imagine Him apart from anything. He's always been, He is, and He always will be. Draw a line with arrows on both sides of it, and you can't imagine of a time that's apart from God. He didn't come into being. Now, that was a huge distinction from Greek dualism because the Greeks actually thought that matter preexisted God. It was chaotic, it was broken it didn't have any order to it and then they thought of god in the concept of form is the way that plato and aristotle and uh, socrates actually thought of it and so form came into being after matter was already there and form started to cover the earth and so the, immediately god now is imposing beauty and order and structure on things and in that dualistic system they always had an explanation for chaos that was all the matter that God hadn't gotten to, that form hasn't reshaped. And so what's interesting, he said, 
who is and who is, uh, who was and who is and who is to come is just decrying the, the eternality of God. Now, I'm going to show you how all these factor into a message that he's writing for people to prepare themselves for what's about to happen. The third part in verse 11 is transcendence. He said, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. This is like the first clause in the Lord's the pattern for praying that Jesus gave in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse uh, 9 and following. The, the first petition is that he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I've given this illustration a lot. I used to do it when the piano was here. Uh, we had a big baby grand piano here. And, but you could do it against any wall. Lean against the wall and push as hard as you can. It's not going to move the wall. And if you're not a total wimp, you're sooner or later going to push hard enough that it's going to begin to displace you because you're pushing against something that's infinitely bigger than you. And when you pray, Jesus said, I want you to push yourself out of heaven. You can't, you, God isn't hallowed. He isn't made holy because of what you say or anything that you can do. He is. If, if he's God, he is whether you think it or not. And so that little pattern for praying was intended to push you out of heaven, to get you out of there so that you can see God as he really is. And that's what they're doing here incessantly. They're saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You're God, we're not, we're praising you. Now the, third, the fourth thing that is so rational about this is probably the most significant of all is this concept of God's sovereignty. And we see it in verse 11 when it says, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's a closed system. That's a lot like Proverbs 16.4, that God created everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. You live in a closed system. And the, this worship service that's engaging these angelic beings that are really weird and engaging all of these men and they're praising in heaven and it doesn't stop. It's intensely rational and it's very God-centered. And they say, you created everything. Now, the, the comfort that would have come into the hearts of people reading this is that God's not going to be surprised by this tremendous tumult that's about to take place. He created it. It's from Him and through Him and to Him. It says that in, in Romans eleven thirty six, where Paul just goes into, he said, everything is to him be the glory forever and ever because everything is from him and through him and to him. That's like God throwing a boomerang. It comes out of it and it goes through and then it comes back to him and catches it in his hand. You live in a closed system. Now I know that that, again, is smoking some of your wheels because people don't think that way. It's much con more convenient for Christians to say, well, God wants this and he doesn't want that. Well, guess what? As soon as you start doing that, you put him in all the good stuff and you take him in all the bad stuff because you, you can't bear the thought that he would want that kind of bad stuff to be in your life. And you want to think that he's always your friend. And you put him in the good stuff and you take him out of the bad stuff. But guess what? The scripture says he's in all of it. That's what Job tells his wife in Job chapter 1 in verse 10. She says, she's basically asking him to commit suicide. Why don't you just curse God and get it over with and die? And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Are we to accept the good from God and not the bad? In Isaiah 45 and verse 7, it says, I create good and evil, light and darkness. And Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 14, Solomon writes, he said, on the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has created one as well as the other. We need that back in the repertoire of our faith. And what John sees in this is intensely rational. And what these angels are saying is something that will have been marvelously comfort to these people that are about to go through this. Because he's saying he created it. It's because of his will that it exists. And I want to share a statement from you. This is one of my favorite quotes from Herman Bavink, which was, he's a Dutch Reformed theologian, and he wrote, a very fine book. It was published in 1901, so it's quite old, The Doctrine of God. He said, when the creator thinks of the creature, he's thinking his own thinking. Now, what that means is that when his thoughts go out to you, when he, when he peers upon you, he's retracing what he's already known. Now, think with this just a moment. Now, I know that's strange at first, but it's a good handle once you understand it to remember this. 
if God is omniscient, which means he knows all things, he never can be subject to the process of learning. Because if he learns anything, his, the state of his knowledge after knowing it has become larger than before. So you would have to say he wasn't omniscient before. If he ever loses... That, now, as I get older, I forget a lot of stuff. But God can't. Because if he ever forgets something, it, it now, the diminishment of his knowledge makes him less than God. And so, what he has known about you, the days that were written in a book, they've always been. They've always been. And so, when he thinks of you, he's thinking what he's already known. When he watches you today, he's watching what he already has written, what he already knows. And if you don't believe that, you're not believing your Bible. This world, now open theism is beginning to teach people, well, there's a whole bunch of this that God can't know. That's impossible. He knows all things. There's part of this that he didn't create. He created all things, and because of his will, they exist. Now, the intense comfort that comes out of this is amazing because you cannot be in a place apart from God. And David says this in Psalm 139. He says, If I ascend to heaven, behold, thou art there. If I descend into Sheol, behold, thou art there. He said, You know my thoughts while they're still afar, which means you think my thoughts before I think them. See, this is a great God. The, the description of this, I think, I, I fear that I'm not even doing remotely adequate job trying to get us out of our comfort zone in this narrow little window that we almost carry around like a picture frame trying to find him in it somewhere. But you live in a creation that's all him. It's from him and through him and to him. Now I'm going to end with this last quote before I take your questions. This is one of the finest quotes that I have ever read by A.W. Tozer. He wrote it in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy One, right before he died. I think this might have been the, the best that Tozer ever wrote, and he wrote a lot of good things. He said, If some watcher or holy one had spent his glad centuries by the sea of fire, and I'll stop right there. He's talking about an amazing Christian woman or man that has spent hundreds of years right at the gate of hell, the sea of fire. And he says, okay, we're going to pick that woman's brain, that guy's brain. He said, if that, were, if that one were to come to earth, how meaningless to him would be the ceaseless chatter of the busy tribes of men, the stuff that we normally talk about. How strange to him and how empty would sound the flat and stale and profitless words heard in the average pulpit from week to week. And were such a one to speak on earth, would he not speak of God? Would he not charm and fascinate his hearers with rapturous descriptions of the Godhead? And after hearing him, after hearing him, could we ever again consent to listen to anything less than theology, the doctrine of God? Would we not thereafter demand of those who would presume to teach us that they speak to us from the mount of divine vision or remain silent altogether? Now, I'm probably going to get a lot of email because of what I'm about to say. Because probably many of you have thought of saying this to me. and He's basically saying... When you know God, you know whether the preacher knows him. When, when you listen to his descriptions of God, they are lining up with what you know, or it makes you want to say, you need to just shut your mouth. Now, I fear deep inside of my heart after... 21 years of ministry. I fear deep inside of my heart that there are many, many churches today that have engineered their and designed their whole entire ministry to say what people want to hear. To tickle their ears is how Paul describes it. And I, I, I fear how many times in the course of our lifetime that you've actually heard the voice of God. Because those of you that know him, you know his voice. 
I don't... Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, before he died, he, 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 he talked about sensing the presence of God in his preaching. And he says, I, I, I fear that I probably only preach two times the way I want to in my entire life. And he, he talked about a, a sense of boldness. He talked about a clarity of thought. And he, he says, I think I've only really done this two times. And mind you, he, he was an amazing preacher. He wasn't pathetic at all. But he said, I, I, I believe that both times I was sleeping. Both times, my understanding of all that it should be, it's captivating of me in my humanity and the clarity of thought through which I was communicating. He said, I can't tell you how disappointed when I awoke both times. And it's, it's a tremendous burden to teach you all. There's an account that I, I'm going to give that you won't ever give for me. There's some of you in this room that aren't going to be here six months from now. Because sooner or later I'm going to say something that's going to offend you. There's something that somewhere along the way that my study of Scripture and my understanding of the demands of our faith, the demands of the gospel on our life, is going to step on your toes. Because I would pray that I'll never lose my courage to invasively penetrate parts of your life and cause you to think of the gospel there instead of leaving you alone. I refuse to make it comfortable. I, I, I would imagine at the end of my ministry that probably is not that far. Hopefully it'd be 10, 15 years from now. But I, I fear at the end of it, we won't have an unusually large church. We, we have four to 6,000 people that listen to us online every week. But this probably is never going to be an unusually large church because it's not my job to make you feel good about yourself when you're not faithful. There's many of you that praise God. Your lives, I, I know you well enough and I've seen the work of God's Spirit in your life and the holiness that you possess now is a remarkable change from where you once were. And for that, you should give eternal thanks and praise. But there's some of us here and many in our world that believe that this is a game. And Peter just says it in First Peter, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 to 22. He said, If anyone's escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and he's again entangled and overcome, the latter state has become worse for him than the former. It'd be better for him if he never, know, if he never knew than having known and turned away. And I fear that that will be true of many. I pray it isn't of you. All right, let me take your questions. What is the significance of the types of animals seen by John? The ox, the eagle, the lion, and the man? I'm not exactly sure. I think that they're depicting, we'll see it a little bit later in the book, but they're depicting different creatures that have different purpose in the creation. And the manifestation of those faces is a manifestation of character and quality that came from those beings. That's as close as I can get you right now. Next question. Is this service eternal in that if we go to heaven, will we be able to see this worship as John did? That is actually quite, a, quite an interesting question. It captures many of my own inquiry. I don't believe that heaven is just going to be an eternity of a worship service. I think there's going to be service. I think going back to the restoration of the creation, God put us in His creation, gave us dominion over it, and there was no sin over the world. He said, you shall exercise dominion and subdue it. What that meant without sin in the world is that we didn't need to overtake sin like we do now. But what we needed to do is to engage with the creativity, the strength, and the courage that he's given us, a created order, and cause it to honor him more because we're in it than if we were not. 
That has to come from your conclusions in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. And so the restoration of this, a new heaven and a new earth, could be God putting you to work in accomplishing that very task. And so I personally don't believe that it's just going to be us sitting in a room worshiping for eternity. I think that there will be worship in it. It's possible that this worship service never ends in that place. But I, I believe that you will be engaged in service to him in a different way. All right, last question. That's it. That's, that always makes me feel better when I see that. All right, let's pray and, uh, and we'll have our communion. Father, we, uh, I, I just want to thank you um, for a passage that just makes me so uncomfortable. I, I pray that it would make any, any of your, your daughters and sons in this room kind of uncomfortable. Because I, I fear what Luther said should be said to many of us, that our thoughts of God are far too human. We've, many people, the old adage that the Bible tells us that you created us and then ever since we, we've returned the favor in creating you. And I think most of us are sitting in a place that our thoughts of you are constructs of powerful men and women that we've known and their projections of, of just ideas that we've taken from the earth. We've created almost, as it were, Mr. Potato Head. We've taken our ideas of you a little from here and a little from there. And many of us are guilty of tremendous indolence and tremendous sloth when it comes to studying Scripture and really thinking our thoughts after your thoughts, shaping those our thinking along with your thinking. And what I ask that you would do over the next few moments would be to visit us, both the Christians and the non-Christians in this room, the, the mature and the immature, the young and the old, the wise and the simple. And you would visit our thoughts, you would attend them, and give us just a brief glimpse of you. You would help us to understand that there's something at work in this creation that's bigger than we are. And it would thereby bend our knee and humble us. And so we submit these moments to you as we would take communion, as Christians would come and, and take a little piece of bread and dip it in a chalice of, of wine to remind them that their identity is in Jesus. It's not in their cars or their houses or their relationships or in their children. It's in you. And as we do this, we pray that you would be honored by it. We thank you for these things now as we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.